Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and um, I feel very privileged to have been asked to come this evening and um, to ask some questions of um, David and to engage in a conversation with him about this, this remarkable new book. Um, many of you have acquired it tonight. You won't have had a chance to do more than just flip through it, but I have, had the, um, I have been able to read it very carefully, and I must say, David, it's been fantastic. It's, I, I love your style. It's a fascinating compilation. Um, your style is very, very individual and was described last year by um, a commentator on one of your other publications as, and I quote, uh, as having an accessible song-like simplicity. And, and I think that does sum it up, but of course beneath that there is incredible, um, incredible complexity and fluidity. So many things are going on. Um, now, the issues that are covered in this particular book, being there, um, are a little bit um, they refer back, of course, to many recurrent themes in David's work, but this particular volume, above all, concentrates on um, drama, opera, visual art, and music. And I suppose, for me, when I think about David and what he means in this country, um, I do see him as a kind of polymath, because the, you know, the breadth of his interests is really quite, quite breathtaking. And, you know, he, his novels, and you've just heard about them, and the poetry, they're very well known, but, of course, when you read this particular volume, and if you didn't know it already, you'll realize that David has also been deeply immersed in music and especially opera. And when I just look at all of these essays and criticisms and what they, what they mean and what they cover, I suppose, David, I do think of maybe um, Baudelaire and the symbolists in the 19th century and this idea of correspondences between the arts, the idea of synthesis of the arts, and perhaps even um, the Wagnerian concept of the total work of art, Gesamtkunstwerk, um, all of these things, I feel, um, are right there um, in you know, informing the, your approach um, to the subjects that interest you. And of course, the essays extend right up to Bill Viola, and um, a good group of Australian um, visual artists, and I'll particularly be interested in hearing, um, in asking David some questions about the essays that deal with visual culture in Australia, both indigenous and non-indigenous. And later on, um, I, if we get a chance, I will ask David also to comment with his general views on some specific issues which, of course, do recur um, through the book. I'd like to ask you, David, just to talk to us a little bit about yourself and Italy and your interest in Italy, Italian civilization, the classical heritage and how that informs you know, contemporary um, art and, and, and creativity in Australia. And I'd also be interested to have, because you talk about Wagner a lot, um, just you and Wagner and where you stand. <laughs> it's a big and complex issue. And um, not so long ago, in fact, I, I saw that very good commentary, I suppose. It wasn't really a documentary. Stephen Fry um, on Wagner, and it was a very, very interesting one indeed. So the book, um, but what I really want to do is I'm just going to follow. You won't know it yet until you've read the book, but I'm going to follow the general trajectory of the essays and the reviews that are contained in it. Um, and I suppose 
in, in starting at the beginning, we're going to be looking at you know, the, the, the trajectory of, of David's career, his education and growing up in Sydney, which is so well known, of course, um, through what he's written, um, the novels especially. Then, of course, his period in the UK from the late 50s up until 1968 when he came back to Australia. He then taught English um, here. And then, of course, his decision in 1977 to become a full-time writer. And you know all about those extraordinary novels. But this particular book, Being There, is the third in what we might call a collection of a uh, recent group of personal essays and commentaries. Um, the first was a first place of 2014 about many things, but especially about family and place, all the things we've been hearing about already home and who we are. The Writing Life, again published in 2014, looking at great writers who have influenced David and himself, of course, as a writer. And then the new book, um, uh, Being There, uh, which I want to talk about um, tonight. Well, let's begin with the very first um, um, criticism, critique, um, in the book, um, in his introduction, David talks about that this, this covers, in fact, 50 years, from 1965 up until now. And there was this very good article, very intriguing article in the Canberra Times, um, published in 1965, The Stigma. And remember, this four years before Monty Python, if you saw that documentary on SBS last night, which I found quite interesting. Um, uh, and it takes us, of course, right through to the free translation of um, Euripides' Hippolytus, which is at the end of the book, and again, a very remarkable piece of writing. But that first um, essay um, in the Canberra Times talks about um, an event in London, a kind of neo-Dada event, and I, I wonder whether you could talk, David, about um, better, the better bookshop and that whole sort of world that you entered um, when, you, when you saw and, and, and experienced that exhibition. Well, I uh, was extremely fortunate in going to England at the particular moment that I went. I went in 1959. Uh, I'd, I was 24. Uh, I'd spent all my life in Brisbane. And uh, although I was interested in all sorts of things, I'd really had no direct experience of a lot of things. For example, I had never seen uh, a real Impressionist painting. And, you know, I can remember now going to the Courtauld Institute and standing in front of a, of a Monet beach scene for the first time and being absolutely bowled over by the fact that the painting was so tactile. You know, something you could not get at all from any kind of illustration you'd seen. But I also was in England at the moment when England was going th about to go through the most extraordinary revolution. And one of those... Um, things was that was England was really discovering uh, American art at that moment. And was, but there was a huge sort of breakthrough. And Better Books was a, was a bookshop I uh, went into very often. And I went in, in, in there one day, and what there was was uh, something that in those days was called a happening. And it was the very, very first happening that had been set up in, 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 in London. <clears throat> and I was so bowled over by it that I wrote a piece about it and sent it back to the Canberra Times. That was the first piece I ever had published in a, uh, <laughs> in a, in a, in a paper. And, so fantastic. Uh, and I, I, I sent it to the Canberra Times because Canberra Times then was the nearest thing in Australia, it seemed to me, to, to be uh, a fully uh, Australian yeah. paper. 
And I, I sent them several other things. Almost immediately afterwards, I sent a piece on Pinter, uh, on a new play of Pinter. But th th this exhibition was something that is essential to the book because the thing that ties all the arts together for me is that all of them are about the body. And when this book is called Being There, it means exactly that, that we actually put our body on the line, whether we're listening to a piece of music or attending an opera or looking at a picture. And in this case, entering uh, an experience is what it was. You went into, the, the first, you put, you, first of all, you had to pay a shilling because the, the, um, the whole exhibition was banned. And in order to circumvent the uh, Lord Chamberlain, uh, and the English censorship of the time, uh, you had to join a society, and it be then became a private event. So you put your shilling down, and you were faced with a complete wall of telephone books, and that was the entrance, except you had to find your way through. So you had to put your head through, and then put your shoulders through, and force your way through this wall of telephone books, London telephone directories, and then you were in a space where there were various exhibits, all of them of the most shocking kind. And they were, um, they were bloody trusses, and they were, for example, um, uh, hel helmets full of real bra brains. And you, you got through all of that as quickly as possible, and then you got into various other, other rooms, but the, the, the room that was the real revelation of all of this, and this is why I say it was a proper bodily experience. You went into a very, very large chamber first, and there were, um, it, it, it was all damp. There were pools of water on the floor, all rusty, water dripping down the walls, and the whole place was hung with what looked like flayed flesh, but was really very dirty plastic torn into strips. And in, in the middle of it, there was uh, a group and there were three um, shop models uh, with their heads stuck on sticks, and they were grouped around a kind of female goddess. And the female goddess was, in fact, a very, very large um, brown leather chair with a head stuck on the back of it, and the arms of the, of the, the brown leather chair looking like spread thighs, and in the middle of that, there was a bedpan full of absolutely stinking liver. And <laughs> so the first thing you did was you just made as quickly as you possibly could for the only exit. And when you opened the door and stepped out, you fell about five feet into complete darkness. And you were in there, and that was all made of some kind of material that you couldn't stand up when you couldn't lie down, you wallowed around, and eventually you found a little way out, which was just something that you first of all had to put your hands through, and then you had to wriggle about eight feet through it in order to get out. It was utterly, utterly claustrophobic, completely dark, and then you found yourself reborn into but a, but a, a real proper physical experience you found yourself reborn into a kind of little parlor, which was kind of beautifully um, uh, English, small, 
with floral wallpaper and everything, except that written all over the walls were obscenities and telephone numbers. <laughs> I won't go on, but that was, no, fantastic. That was the experience. It was called the stigma, uh, and it was utterly bodily. I mean, there was no way in which, once you'd got your way into it, there was no way out except the way you went. And that was, for London, an absolutely extraordinary first experience of a different kind of yeah. art. Yeah. And it uh, took a few years, I suppose, for that kind of event to come to Australia. It came eventually. But I suppose we had health and safety rules too, so... Yeah, <laughs> but the Some other thing about yeah. that was that when you yeah. went out, you were in the middle of Soho. Yeah. So you went out into a yeah. world which was pretty much the same. All fresh. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, D D David, look, there's quite an industry these days, of course, about the Aussies in London in um, the swinging 60s. And I just wonder whether you can maybe just tell us a little bit about your encounter with other Australians, but, but also you might want to comment, I was interested in reading the biographical notes on you, that you went to Birkenhead yeah. in 1962, which means that you were there in, in and near Liverpool when the Beatles were invented, so yes. um, it'd be interesting to hear that. Well, look, I, I, I struck hardly any Australians in London. A couple of people I knew, yeah. and I pursued relationships I'd already had with them. I made up my mind from the beginning I, well, well, I asked somebody how you got a room in London, and they said you went and looked on a newsagent's, uh, outside a newsagent, and then you went and knocked on someone's door, and I thought, I'm not going to do that. So I looked in the news statesman and thought, the, at least the people who are advertising a room in the news statesman, I know something about them. They're literate, and they read the news statesman. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, I, you know, I found a sunny attic in Putney, so I, I really moved straight into English life, and I didn't meet um, any of the well-known Australians who were there really for a very long time, except Peter Porter. I was teaching at a school, and uh, there was a man there who um, was a published poet, and uh, he, he realised that I wrote, we wrote poetry, used to talk to one another about it, and he took me to... Um, uh, meetings of the group, which was the most important um, poetic sort of circle at that time. And uh, that was Edward Lucy Smith, and it took place every week in Edward Lucy Smith's house. He was an art critic mm, yeah, and um, also a poet. And I met Peter Porter there. So that was re really my only um, meeting with any of the local Australians, although I did read private eye where Barry Humphreys was already going. Uh, and I also knew uh, Robert Hughes a little, but I'd met him on the boat going to England. Um, I then went to teach in Birkenhead, which is in the north of England. And of course, all my friends in London said, you go up there, you'll never see us again. That's the end of the world. Nothing happens up there. <laughs> and I arrived there, I think, just after Christmas, 19, beginning of 1963. And the Beatles had their first record in the following March. And uh, everybody was beating a track to the door. <laughs> and that, that was a very, very exciting place to be because it was not just the music, there was also a poetry scene. And there were the Liverpool, Liverpool poets at that moment and um, very, very lively. But the thing that attracted me most about the place was I lived in the Wirral on the other side from Liverpool. And that landscape was absolutely untouched. There wasn't a, there was, it had not been touched 
since the days of, of Gawain and the Green Knight. I mean, you could walk out into that countryside and that's where you were in medieval England. It was fab fabulous. It, I, I agree. I, I love that northwest part of England. I, I've always enjoyed going up there. Not like that but anymore. No. <laughs> no. No. Um, too many post-war town, or too many town planners, actually. And, yeah. and I used to go up there in the 1980s and watch entire Georgian parts of um, Liverpool itself, and street after street of handsome Georgian terraces yeah. being torn down by the demand of the local council, who then put up tacky contemporary things that were going to be pulled down again in a decade or two. Yeah. It was a real tragedy. It was also wonderful because oh. Liverpool is nothing like the south of England. No. And it was wonderful to have London and all of that culture and all the rest of it and its, um, you know, its own particular kind of gentility, home counties, gentilities, and then to go to somewhere that was utterly, utterly rough but not really dangerous. Like, like Liverpool, yeah. and that was, uh, it was an easier place to be an Australian, I must say, than, than, than being in London. Well, now, moving through the book, there's a wonderful essay, um, which you gave in 1988 as the Kathleen Robinson Lecture at the University of Sydney, I think it was, and it, it's a it, it, it really is, um, it, it's a wonderful thing to read, um, and you write about, in your very clear style, um, the power of opera, um, that can be understood by those, coming back to the point you made before, by attending, by being there. Mm. And I think that is such an important issue and, and, and a very constant theme through so much of what you've written. And you ask um, some fundamental questions. Is opera still a living art? And, um, you know, that was in 1988. I, I, I perhaps can ask you that question again now, um, more than 25 years on, because you wrote in the essay that perhaps um, after Britain um, as in Benjamin Britten, um, opera was still waiting for its newest spirit to appear. Um, where do you feel it is now, um, right now, today? It's very difficult to say. I think there was a moment, and it was, it was very well um, presented in a place like Sid Sid Sydney, because I think through the 70s and 80s, opera was probably the most exciting place for theatre in Sydney. Uh, the productions that you saw then, uh, the willingness of people to expose themselves to absolutely new work, work like the Carmelites of um, Poulain or um, uh, the Rise and Fall of the City of Mahagoni, um, all the Anacek operas. That had happened because um, the audience in that place had been highly uh, educated by opera itself, and I'm a big believer in the fact that we don't uh, learn how to deal with any art, whether it's film or opera or anything else, uh, by studying it. You know, going to the performances is where we learn how to become an audience for that, exactly the same way that people in Shakespeare's time learned to deal with Shakespeare by going to the plays. You know, th th the, those audiences were, by the end of his lifetime's work, uh, dealing with works of a complexity, uh, theatrically and in language, which only comes from your being a theatre-goer for 20, 30 years or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. And that's how we educate ourselves to become film-goers. You know, my generation all learned that 
um, from the age of five. Yeah. You know, you became a very, very skilled reader of film after a while. Nobody taught us any of that. Nobody yeah. talked about it. No adult ever uh, led us in any way. We discovered that for ourselves. That's how an audience discovers to deal mm -hmm. with works of art of the utmost complexity in the end. And that's how uh, a Sydney audience, I think, from the early 70s onwards, was uh, educated into opera. That audience is largely gone. Yeah. Well, now look, the next year, 1989, you publish an article in the Sydney Morning Herald called Something to Sing About. And again, it's a very interesting piece. And it, it begins with a reflection on um, talking to some German friends of yours who had been in Sydney with you, um, reflecting upon the whole issue of producing European opera in Australia, but doing it our own way, um, in our own, with our own approach to it. Um, and at the end of the essay, or the end of the piece, um, you say that opera has become the most popular of all the high arts. And you talked about open-air performances, you know, in the domain with 100,000 people attending and whatever. But I was just sort of, and I don't disagree with you, um, of course, but the other side of that coin, and we see it every time, there's a criticism of, you know, the, the Austra um, Australia Council or in the UK, the Arts Council, you know, when it comes to grants to, to opera, people keep saying that it's an incredibly expensive art form, it's a very elitist art form, not too many people can afford the tickets and therefore the government is subsidising per capita at a fairly hefty price um, those who attend. Now, I'm not saying that's my view, but it's just one that one, one reads you know, fairly, fairly regularly and that's a dilemma of opera um, in, in one sense a, as a phenomenon in our, in our contemporary society. And the other, and you might want to comment on this too, is, you know, as someone who comes from the art world, I also think about, you know, the whole thing about blockbuster exhibitions and what they cost to put on and the obsession that governments have about the numbers that come to them and whatever. Um, and, you know, I suppose, uh, uh, well, the, the Dorsey Post-Impressionism exhibition here in Canberra at the NGA had 450,000 visitors, which is an amazing thing. So that is, again, a popular form of um, high art, I suppose. Um, but... You know, would you like to comment on that? Just the, the idea of being popular, and, but, but how do we manage it in a modern world with the cost of production? Well, look, I, I, th I think that we make some kind of mistake in believing um, that audiences won't respond or can't respond to what you actually offer them. And I think what we discover over and over again is that these things, these works of culture, have survived because... And, you know, they, su they survive 3% of all paintings survive, you know, and so on through all the arts, operas, all of that. They survive because there is something there that is immediately accessible to a very, very large number of people in the most absolutely human terms. I mean, they, there's something there that if they are actually faced with it and they bring their attention to it, deeply moves them. Mm. Uh, so it, I think it's up to us, as, it is, as it's up to us as parents to um, expose our children to a whole lot of things, saying, OK, they won't be ready for this yet, or some of them will respond now, some of them will respond later but basically allowing them to know what is there and test themselves against it is what we owe to the, yep. to the children we're educating. But in exactly the same way, if we uh, have been entrusted 
as custodians of what we call the culture. Um, we owe it to people out there to offer them these things and say, here they are, those of you who are interested, come along and look at it. And I think what happens is that we're astonished over and over again by how many people turn up to those things. They don't respond to everything. They respond to some things, but they take something away that has uh, enlarged them, has enlivened them, has introduced them to something they did not know existed, but once they know it, it's existed, uh, has told them something about themselves that they want to keep building on. Yeah. And I think that's our, our duty. If, if that costs a lot of money, well, what else are we going to spend? I'm on? with you. And it's, <laughs> no, it's no different to <laughs> museums and galleries and what they cost. Of course, it's, it's very... I, I'm always it's, astonished by... You know, as a writer, what you tend to do is you write about what interests you yeah. and what has absolutely engaged you and you can't leave alone. And all the time you're writing any book, you are saying to yourself, maybe in the end I'm only writing this for myself. Maybe no one out there is going to be interested in this. And I think you then say to yourself, well, actually, I'm not so odd that if it interests me and deeply engages me, there will be enough readers out there to be engaged in that way. So that when I wrote, for example, um, uh, Ransom, I don't think anybody would ever seeing you doing that saying, would say, there's going to be a huge audience for this. They would say, I don't know what you think you're doing because who, who out there is going to be interested in, 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 in this? And if they wanted to read the Iliad, they'd go and read the Iliad. I was simply astonished that that is probably the most widely read and popular book I've written. Yeah. And, um, you know, the fact that that is a book about that happens 27,000, 2700 years ago and is taken from something you know, that belongs way back there, and it's about nothing Australian. Uh, what is it? Something, there's something there that people simply respond to, and you put it out there and say, okay, those of you who respond, respond. And these are just the big universal issues. And it's interesting what you said before, thinking of when I was in my 20s, I suppose, so many, I suppose myself included, but so many friends who would go to Opera Australia for the very first time in their yeah. lives and would be blown away. Yeah. And they were, they were just sold on it from that point yeah. on. So um, yeah. it's really interesting. Um, well, look, there's another wonderful essay um, called Growing Up with the Stars. This was a lecture <laughs> given in 1999. Um, and it really is, you must all read it, it's full of brilliant insights. And one of the ideas that David explores is the, the way that we, the public, and, and you sort of touched on this before, um, can develop special relationships with actors and actresses, with the stars, throughout our lives and their lives. Um, and the fact that um, so, so often actors and actresses can introduce into their work a kind of cross-reference to what's come before because we have that kind of shared history and shared experience. And one of the, there's a really interesting and very long discussion of some like it hot. Now, <laughs> I, I've, I've seized on this because when I was at the British Museum, I had an extraordinarily brilliant chairman, a man called Sir Klaus Moser, um, now Lord Moser. He was chairman of the Royal Opera House. He was... Um, Chancellor of the Open University of Israel, a distinguished economist and statistician. He, he'd been warden of um, Wadham College in Oxford. And I remember saying to him once, over some, some dinner or whatever, 
of all films ever, what is your favorite film? And I was amazed when he said Some Like It Hot. <laughs> so over to you, David. <laughs> no, look, I, um, uh, I, I, I've often said that growing up in Brisbane in the late 30s and 40s um, was really a time of the most absolutely extraordinary, rich theatrical and, and musical uh, life in Australia much, much more rich than it is now. And that was because, you know, what happened it, it, that every year uh, the Doily Cart Company, which was local Gilbert and Sullivan, uh, J.C. Williamson's came and they did all the Gilbert and Sullivan operas and uh, uh, Gaius Moncrief came and did uh, her four operas, which she all, always did, the Rio Rita and the Merry Widow and Victoria and her Hussar and um, uh, the Maid of the Mountains. There were... Uh, 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 and one of the things I learned from that, because I used to go to the Borovansky Ballet and see all the, all the Diaghilev ballets, mm. one of the things I learned from that was that if you went to all the Gilbert and Sullivans, for example, it was always the same cast. Yeah. And they were all playing themselves as well as, as well as those people. And they would frequently play games with the audience where they would start a, one song and drift off into another song and say, oh, I'm so really sorry, that was last week. And, and you got that kind of idea of what it was to deal with companies that were playing and... Although they were the same people, they were also being different people, but it was also necessary that you recognise them as the same people. Mm. And I, I think I'd learned a really wonderful lesson from that about, say, how the Shakespeare companies worked. Um, that, you know, you recognise that the same person who was playing one comic role this week had been, been Falstaff the last week. And it struck me later that one of the places where that happened all the time was in the cinema. That, it, that you know, you, you got to have seen all the Gary Cooper roles and all the Cary Grant roles and all the, hum the um, um, Humphrey Bogart roles and all the Bette Davis roles. And the whole business of that was not to be like famous actors who, could, who were chameleons and who could change themselves completely, it meant always playing yourself and being utterly recognisable, like your aunt, an aunt or an uncle or a cousin or something like that, and being just sufficiently different for this to be a different experience. But the familiarity of the people and the slight differences was part of what gave you uh, the sense that this is a continuous experience, that I, I will grow up with these people. I will know these people all of my life. I will watch them grow old. And that's an amazing phenomenon. Yeah. No, well, thank, thank you. Um, now, one of the, one of the um, shorter essays that I really found fascinating was called The South. And this is really based on the BBC radio interview that you did in 2001 um, in the, as um, a break in the proms, I think. Is that right? Yeah, with their yeah, telecast. Yeah. They asked um, people to write a piece about the South, because that was the theme of the proms for yeah. that year. Well, look, I, I found it really, really interesting because it, it sort of illuminated for me so much of what you've done in your life, in fact, and your engagement with the classical tradition, uh, you know, which, which you've talked about already. You write, or you 
you spoke, and it's written down now, your arrival in Naples on the fair sky <laughs> in 1959. Um, and I, what I loved was that wonderful inversion, that here we were in the south, and you had to travel north to um, encounter the south from a European perspective, because our perspective in Australia, um, particularly then, but even today, um, was very much that of, a, of Northern Europe, I suppose, looking to the Alps and beyond the Alps, back down through Italy um, to the Mediterranean. And, and, and you write beautifully about the subject of Northern European longing for the sunny south, um, the idea of sort of the, the, the naked form, the classical tradition, pagan ideas and pagan rituals and whatever. Um, and then you wrote um, poems about the south, which were called after Baidecker, so I, I'd be really fascinated just for you to talk in general terms about your relationship with the Mediterranean, given your own family's background, origin in the Eastern Mediterranean at the end of the 19th century, um, and how you as a contemporary Australian feel about that tradition and how it informs who you are, how you think, and the work that you do. Yeah, look, that's very... Uh long and complicated subject. <laughs> well, we've but got look, another, we've is, got five more minutes. Let me, let, me, let me put it this way, that one of the, um, my, my progress in making that discovery really in the end became the discovery that Australia itself made, because what we did uh, over a certain period was redefined ourselves as, um, you know, when, when we came to the country, first of all, we thought of ourselves as being cold weather people, basically. And we lived in the part of the country where we could reproduce the landscape and the uh, living forms of really the home counties. And um, what's happened to us over the last 60 years, perhaps, is that the population has genuinely drifted north and we've redesi redefined ourselves as warm weather people, which really means not English, uh, not Northerners at all, but Mediterraneans. And everything we see about what we eat, the way our coffee culture, uh, how we like to eat outdoors, uh, the general kind of um, freedom we feel about exposing the body and showing the body off, all of that is very, very unlike the very Anglo-Saxon yeah. world that we grew up in, well, that I certainly grew up in 70 years ago as a child. It's, a, it's an entirely, entirely, uh, entirely rethink of what kind of people we really are. Mm. But I, had dis I made that discovery myself and realised, of course, that other people had made it before me. I mean, Goethe is the most wonderful example of somebody who is the absolute embodiment of northern culture, but who knows that he harbors inside himself a pagan of an entirely different kind. And when he goes to Italy, he simply lets it all loose. Mm -hmm. And um, there's all that wonderful thing there of writing <coughs> elegies in which he actually taps out the rhythms on the back mm -hmm. of the girl he's sleeping with, you know, very un-German <laughs> of that time. Yeah. Uh, so that, that was my discovery too, but I made that discovery the moment I stepped off that boat in Naples. Mm -hmm. I realized this was, and, and went immediately to, um, to Pompeii and saw all those amazing things, because in those days, 
nothing was hidden and all those works which are now regarded as obscenities and you have to go into a special room in the National Museum in Naples to see them. They were all out in the open. Yeah. In. So that was an absolute revelation. And what was an even bigger revelation to me was Italian painting as opposed to the German painting. And you know what I think of particularly, I would and mentioned in that, oh. that work, if you think of the most absolutely extreme piece of northern painting, it's Grunewald's crucifixion, which, you, which is simply the absolute tearing to pieces of a human body. Uh, and, and, you know, people have said that the crucified Christ looks, is, is bleeding and all the whip marks, and he looks like an enormous fallen bird. You simply never find that anywhere in, in Italian painting. In Italian painting, the body is absolutely inviolate. It always retains its perfection and its beauty, what, whether it's being crucified or whatever, because there's a kind of survival of the body's essential um, rightness and innocence inside Italian culture, which is absolutely continuous with what you get in the classical world. Oh. And that was a real revelation to me, as it was when I went to live in Italy, and I lived in a small village, and I realized <laughs> that this wasn't a Catholic country at all. You know, a few old ladies went to Mass once a week, and the only time the rest of the village turned up was on the one Sunday when the cars were blessed. And, and, <laughs> and then the entire village and the whole countryside turned up, and all the cars were blessed. <laughs> Otherwise, what everybody in that village worshipped was olive trees. You know, they are still absolutely pagan. And that was a wonderful discovery and a wonderful um, rediscovery for me of the education I'd had in, in Latin, for example, mm. which made all that um, classical world absolutely as close to me, uh, whether it's Horace or Cicero or... Um, the, the other lyric poets, Catullus, Ovid, uh, absolutely as close to me as, say, Shakespeare or mm. Chaucer or whoever. Well, thank you. That, that was a terrific answer um, to, to my question, which did go on a bit. Um, I agree. Um, now, look, in about five or ten minutes, we're going to open it up for some questions from the floor before we conclude. Now, I don't think um, that I'm going to have time to talk to you really about the libretto for Voss or the translation of um, Euripides' Hippolytus, although it's, they're both fantastic and um, you know, a wonderful, wonderful read. I'd just like to spend the last few minutes, because I'm a visual arts person, I suppose, talking about your essay on Glenn Merkitt, oh, yeah. um, which is really very, very interesting, called um, Glenn Merkitt's Tough Lyricism, uh, which of course quotes from Eliot on Marvel in the, in, the, in the 17th century, and then get on to, again, a short but very, very interesting and very prescient um, essay on Bill Henson, which he published in 1988, when he was just becoming well-established and well-known and admired. Um, and he's, you know, today one of the two or three Austra contemporary Australian artists who we would regard as having um, an international, a global reputation, a very remarkable person um, and artist. Let me start, perhaps, with, um, with Bill Henson. Um, and I, I thought I might just start by asking you to comment on the attempt and it, it wasn't a successful attempt, by the way, 
but the attempt publicly to crucify Bill Henson a number of years ago in relation to um, you know, works in that exhibition at Ros Oxley in, in Sydney, and where we had a situation where the Prime Minister of Australia was denouncing one of our most important artists, the Premier of New South Wales, Yama, was doing the same thing, and federal police and New South Wales police were being sent in to remove works um, by Bill Henson from public institutions. It was that one of those appalling moments of hysteria and ignorance, and I think, you know, we were talking at dinner just now about that was the moment at which the Australian art world did detach itself from the political world in a, in a very sort of interesting way. Um, I'll just say one thing before I hand over to David. Um, we did not have those problems in Victoria. I was director of the National Gallery of Victoria at the time. We talked to Victoria Police about it, and they said, we have no intention of raiding you or visiting you or anything, um, which was fantastic. But every time we got a report in Melbourne of another work by Bill Henson being removed by the police um, in Canberra or Sydney, we put another work up to compensate for it. I think we ended up with 13 or 14 <laughs> Bill Hensons um, at the end of it all, and that was great. The police did have to come once because they had a complaint from the public, and they rang us up and said, we are obliged to come if there's a complaint from the public. Nothing came of it, and it turned out that the member of the public was, in fact, a journalist, and he had a camera crew waiting for the police to turn up with the whole story pre-prepared. But over to you, because I think what happened was a, a major moment in um, you know, the debate about artistic freedom, free speech, free expression in this country, and the, a very uncomfortable intersection between the world of art and politics. But, but David, please. Yeah, I, I was always completely puzzled by it because I simply couldn't see what it was that people were objecting to. Unless you're going to say that, and it's part of our... Uh, obsession about children, it, you, you're simply going to say no person under 17 or 18 who is now officially a child shall ever be presented by an artist because merely inviting people to gaze at such a person uh, is some kind of criminal offence because it is... Uh, dealing already with emotions which people shouldn't be feeling. I, I can't understand any of that. What I will say is that what appalled me about it was something which I think we've noticed, and that is once upon a time when the Australia Council was established here, one of the things that was established with it was the notion of um, arm's length dealing with the arts by politicians. And what we've come to see recently, I thought the, 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 in, in Rudd's case, it was simply appalling, but it was equally appalling when the, uh, the Prime Minister now, Tony Abbott, interfered with the awarding of the Prime Minister's prize. I think that, that, that politicians have no business uh, interfering in that kind of way. If they want to put money up, let them put money up, but the people who do that judging are people who are in some kind of way uh, objective and are meant to be uh, experts in that field. And no politician uh, ought to say to themselves, I am expert in this way to make that kind of judgment. Um, I think it was a terrible moment because as you say, if you go right back to the Whitlam period, 
there has been a huge um, uh, wave of um, support for politicians by the artists. The first people to come forward at each election and organize opinion and raise funds and all the rest of it had been the artists. I think the artists now have rightly learned their lesson and they simply want to leave that kind of support of individual politicians alone. Yeah. And it's a damn good thing that they do so. Well, look, David, we, we could talk quite a lot about what you've written about Wilhelmsen because it, it's so good. So just read it um, in your copy of the book. I'd just like to conclude before we throw it open. There's also a wonderful essay um, on Glenn Merkett, as I've mentioned, um, and you begin with talking about the, art the, the architect, the artist slash architect, and his rejection of a kind of architect lifestyle. Um, you describe him very much as almost in the manner of William Morris, perhaps, as the, the, the craftsman sort of architect. And wh what I loved about it was that almost everything you wrote in these essays, you led on from one point to the other. I was saying, yes, yes, absolutely right. I completely agree. Um, and that was wonderful. One of the things, and maybe we'll wrap up on this, but, but again, I would, I would love to talk at great length about this essay. It's a really important one. Um, but I very much was struck by and admired your commentary or your comment on how, why it is important for Australian architect and for architecture and for architects as they go forward to remember the lessons of the past. And in other words, what was it that in the 19th century um, we understood about our landscape and our climate that we lost and we're now rediscovering? But, but what, what would you like to say on that? Uh, I think one of the things that's so interesting about Glenn Merkett is that he goes back to a kind of vernacular material. Yeah. You know, he goes back to um, corrugated iron, he goes back to uh, wood of all kinds, uh, and uh, he has always been willing to draw on the, uh, the local experience of craftsmen in any area where he's building. He wants to go there and find the people here who've been the people who've built barns, who used to build this or, you know, used to build um, shearing sheds or whatever. And they have a long history uh, of knowledge about the, the particular clim climate of that place, its weather, the kind of wood to use and all the rest of it. So he has really, really, in, in each project that he takes up, wanted to go back and draw on craftsmen's knowledge. Uh, and that's what he sees himself as being, as being a craftsman. You know, I mean, it's wonderful if you go to the, um, uh, the studios he built down on the Shoalhaven there and see the, um, the fine, fine detail of those rooms. It's like each room was, is like a secretaire or something like that with, with its drawers and all the rest of it. Everything is... Um, is such fine, fine craftsmanlike detail. And he is always concerned with uh, creating a building that doesn't dominate the landscape, but enters the landscape and becomes part of the landscape. And it's not just that he's thinking about weather and prevailing uh, winds and uh, air currents and um, weather patterns. It is that he actually wants this work that he's making uh, to, to become part of the, an extension of the landscape itself, not something that has 
um, imposed on it. I think of it as being like the, the, those houses being like, like birds that have alighted there. And uh, they, they'll rest for a while. And he has that, that wonderful feeling for that thing. So the, the, the landscape is, uh, is what everything begins from. And the, the materials that come out of that landscape. And, and what I loved was your reference to, um, you know, the sense of indigenous people. Just uh, what was the word? Touching, just touching, touching the earth. Touching the earth. Yeah, yeah, which I think is fantastic. If we had more time, I would love to ask you to comment on the architecture of the new Parliament House here in Canberra. But we don't have <laughs> we don't have more time. Um, so look, um, <coughs> it, it's been I, I've really enjoyed, you know, talking to you about these issues and asking some questions um, concerning what struck me particularly um, as I read the, the various essays in the book. But we're going to spend um, a few minutes now just opening it up to everybody. So um, I think it's probably my role, is it, to just invite questions from the floor? Any questions? I love yeah. answering questions, so don't be shy. <laughs> of course, no one's read the book yet, that's true. But <laughs> Well, I managed to read some of the book this morning, though I have to say that the, um, the campus bookshop did not recognize your name this morning. Um, but my, one theme that comes through, and you repeated it this evening, is that our reaction and our response to works of art, be that music or poetry uh, or painting, is closely associated with our bodily functions, especially breathing. Um, and I can understand that for music, but I wonder if you could say something about how it applies to our appreciation of painting. Ah. Well, look, I think one of the, one of the things about uh, painting is that, and what is very, very important, is how we enter the space of the painting. I mean, often in Europe, you have a wonderful... Um, chance to do that because works are still in situ. They're still in the places that they were, they were put in so that you were to experience them. But it's, it's so important always, uh, for example, when you look at a painting, um, is how big the painting actually is in relationship to your own body. Uh, it's important that you move towards it, move away from it, move sideways, you're able to put yourself into various positions uh, where the artist might have stood when he stood back from the painting to see how uh, he, he wants, wanted things to work. Uh, you're very, very aware with certain kinds of painting, not, Renaissance, not early Renaissance painting, but certainly later Renaissance painting, Venetian painting, and all painting that comes after that, you're very, very aware of the artist being there, putting the paint on. The brush strokes are, are, are part of the whole thing. And really, until you're in a position to be able to get close enough to look at those brush strokes, you're not really in the full presence of the painting. Uh, but I was very struck, for example, um, because I'd grown up looking in my encyclopedia of a whole lot of paintings. There were paintings that I knew, of course, usually in black and white or in terrible color. And um, that's an interesting situation, to have known a painting very well in black and white on a page this big, and then to find yourself 
in the presence of it is just an experience of an absolutely other kind. That tells you, I'm here now. You know, I can go this close, I can move away and everything. And one of the paintings I'd always loved was a Botticelli painting uh, of, the, of Holfernes, Judith and Holfernes. It's, um, it, and, and I had no idea of what size it might be. You know, it was beside, for, in my illustration, beside, for example, the Prima Dira. And I thought there were paintings of both the same size. You go to the Uffizi, you see the Prima Vera, and it's this great big, huge thing. And then you go up to a little glass case, and the Judith and Old Vernies is about that big. That's, that's an entirely different experience. I mean, how, how big that thing is in relation to you and your body is, is a complete um, experience in itself. And, um, you know, in the same kind of way I think of those paintings, I, I think my favorite lot of paintings in, in Venice probably is in San Sebastiano, which is the Veronese, um, the whole church, it's where he's buried and the whole church has been painted by him and the whole ceiling. To actually be under that ceiling, that huge ceiling, and to be given a mirror so that you can walk around and see, that's the most extraordinary experience. But it's an experience of being in the space and your body is part of it. No escape. Hello. Yes, please. Yeah. Um, David, just um, your books about Australia, like I loved um, John O and um, descriptions of growing up in Brisbane and then living overseas, now coming back. Do you find sometimes um, it's easier to think about Australia when you're away from it and what actually brought you back um, home? Oh, look, I mean, the real thing about it is, I think if you're a writer, um, you never leave um, the place where most of the writing for you happens. And, you know, that happens, if, uh, I would say, for most writers, certainly for me, I can't always speak for other people, but the place that I grew up in, which is Brisbane, uh, its particular kind of weather, its particular kind of light is kind of where I always am, uh, wherever I happen to be living. And it's certainly where I am when I'm writing. So in some ways, I never left Australia. Um, it was interesting to be in another place uh, and to see other kinds of life and all sorts of other um, stimulating things happening around you, but basically where I settled to write each day when I was doing it was right back there where I was five years old or four years old or six years old or whatever it was. Um, I think that I came to understand Australia a lot better for having lived that, that ten years in England uh, in one way, and I think I came to understand Australia a lot better um, when I lived for that 24 years backwards and forwards, six months here and six months there in, in, in Italy. And um, partly these, these things are just absolutely individual. I mean, I've given up actually thinking of myself as a representative anything. 
I do not consider myself a representative Australian. I don't even consider myself a representative Queenslander. Um, you know, I think you are, each one of us is absolutely individual and take, we take up exactly what suits us best out of everything that is offered us in the way of being representational, whether we're men or women or gay or ethnic, all of those things. We take up what we, what we can use and we leave what we can't lose, use. And I think that's one of the great privileges that we've discovered as, as Australians. Yeah. You know, we have that kind of freedom. Uh, and we've given up, I hope, uh, the very narrow idea that we have to think of ourselves and as, as Australians and painfully describe ourselves and define ourselves as that. We can be whatever we want to be. And it's not going to change us. What, what we were when we were five is what really, really shapes us. And the rest we make up as we go along. And, of course, what you say applies to Australian painters too because if you think of so many of those expat Australian painters in Europe in the post-war period, they continued painting Australian pictures and just sent them back to the exhibited yeah. Um, yeah? And in the reverse of that will be John Glover. He, throughout his period... In, in Australia, so many of his clients and neighbours wanted memoirs and mementos of England, so he just kept painting his English, um, his English landscapes as well. So it is interesting. And point. then weird things like that yeah. landscape he does of those two temples in yeah. an Australian, exactly. two Greek temples in exactly. an Australian landscape. Yes. Thank you for a wonderful presentation this evening. I, I thought we were coming here to talk about literary things, but we've ranged right across architecture and music and opera and all those things. Um, my concern is Gen Y. We have a few lovely Gen Y people in this room, but not <laughs> nearly enough. And I wonder when I go to blockbuster exhibitions, um, to the opera, not that I particularly go to the opera, but to most of the classical arts, as we've talked about this evening, there are very few Gen Y. Are we losing them to those art forms? Are they bringing on their own art forms? Where do you see Gen Y in all this? Oh, look, I think it's difficult to talk ever in terms of general things. I think, you know, you'd find Gen Y people who are doing one thing and other people who are doing other things. And the other, th the, uh, none of those people as yet have come to finally what they're going to be. You know, I mean, I think we have to allow people time to make their own discoveries of the kind I was just talking about. I mean, what we, what this, what this culture is now is a huge, huge um, rag bag of, of everything there is th that's available, whether it's Asian or uh, indigenous or classical or Renaissance or English or French. Or it's all there. And I think people are going to find their own way through it and make up their, their own um, cultural world out of it. I think it's probably true that um, what we've been used to in the past where there is a general culture, it's not going to be quite like that anymore, but it hasn't been like that for a very long time because the world that I grew up in, basically there was no youth culture and there was no high culture or low culture. Everybody 
participated in the same culture. Whatever age you were, there was, you didn't go to, to, to children's films. You, did, you, know, you, you went on a Saturday afternoon at the matinee, you saw the same films that your parents were going to see that night. And if, if, if you know, theatre or ballet came to town, everybody went, irrespective of class. There was no question of its being high culture or low culture. That's all changed. We're, we now live in a very, very fragmented world. And I think there's no way back from that. But that doesn't mean that people can't make it their own holes out of it. OK, I think over to you. It is over to me, because we do have to wrap up, although the conversation's clearly just beginning. Um, we've had a wonderful discussion, we've heard a wonderful discussion um, about the essence of being there, or to recast that in the present, being here. Uh, to put that in the language of we university teachers, We've heard a conversation in which David, with Gerard's help, has reflected on the fundamental importance of experience, what we would, in a, in a learning sense, call experiential learning. So thank you, uh, David and Gerard, for being here with us. And audience, thank you for being here too. Please join me in thanking David and Gerard. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.